Well, if you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis 37. Today is going to be a topical message, uh, not Christmas-oriented per se. Um, we'll, we'll get there. Um, we'll we'll uh, plan to be there tonight and, of course, into next week leading up to uh, Christmas. But for this week, we're continuing, and I have a topical message that has been on my heart. We've been talking for several weeks now about conflict, how to handle conflict. And we walked through three elements of this. Uh, we talked about humility, and then we talked about forgiveness, and then we talked about truth. And that was what we finished on last week is um, how to handle conflict and dealing with the element of truth, that when I have to speak the truth, how do I handle speaking the truth and the determination to have the courage to speak the truth? And with each week, I've, I've wanted to, to I've been, been drawn to an illustration, and I have never had enough time to give it its due. And that's been a little bit frustrating, but then I realized, well, in order to give it its due, maybe I should just make it a sermon. And so it became a sermon, and that's what today is. Today is a sermon, a practical case study on how to handle conflict. And the account which I'm going to take you to in here, as we see it in Genesis 37 and beyond, is the account of Joseph. Now, Joseph's story commands a fairly good portion of the book of Genesis, and it's a portion of Scripture which I expect the church to be in in maybe a year and a half. Um, we will be getting into Genesis uh, now that we're done with 2 Timothy, we'll be getting into Genesis. We have a few other things uh, to do before we get there. Um, but we will be getting into Genesis in the spring. And we'll, of course, get to Joseph, but it's going to be a ways down the line in Genesis. We'll, we'll have a lot of things to talk about first. But Joseph is a wonderful character in the scriptures. He was a man of, of exceptional and unique character and quality. A man from which we can learn even uh, in the days of his relative youth. You are most likely familiar with the account, but I would like to take uh, the beginning of our time together and walk through it. And as we walk through it, we're going to highlight certain elements of the account of Joseph, um, and then we'll, we'll kind of bring it together toward the end. So Joseph is introduced in the Bible as the 11th born of Jacob's 12 sons. Far more importantly, however, he was the firstborn of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's second wife, the first one being Leah. Now, Jacob had six children with Leah, two with Rachel, and then the remaining four children were born of the handmaids of Leah and Rachel, two to uh, each of the handmaids, respectively. And as I just mentioned, Rachel was the woman of those women whom Jacob truly loved. He desired to marry Rachel first and only, um, but he was deceived into marrying Leah and then extorted for the privilege of marrying Rachel. And this began a natural rivalry between sisters, leading to any number of unfortunate consequences. Uh, first, because the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he gave her the children, and then Rachel used her handmaid to get children by proxy, and then Leah stopped having children, so she used her handmaid to have children by proxy. And then, of course, finally, the Lord opened Rachel's womb, and those last two, numbers 11 and 12, were from Rachel, them, those being Joseph and Benjamin, Joseph being thus the firstborn of Jacob's beloved wife. Uh, concerning this, the Bible says in Genesis 37.3, Now Israel loved Joseph 
more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. Now, the reason the Bible gives for Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph was that Joseph was the son of his old age. We can interpret this in any number of ways, and you can interpret it as you will, but in my opinion, it was the fact that after all of these years, his beloved wife's womb, had been, which had been closed by the Lord, had finally been opened, and Jacob had finally been given a son from Rachel in his old age. And so this son was very special to him. And thus, we see here this coat of many colors that was given to Joseph. And we're not going to get into all the nitty-gritty of what that coat most likely meant uh, as it related to things. But we can, we can most certainly say this. It reflected the tremendous amount of favoritism that Jacob, or Israel as he's called here at this point, had toward this son, Joseph. And as one would expect, this did not sit very well with Joseph's ten older brothers. So that we read in the next verse, Genesis 37, verse 4, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. The sibling rivalry was extremely intense. They hated their brother. They found him an utter incapacity, in fact, to treat him with anything other than contempt. So here we have, of course, the makings of great conflict, right? the makings of a situation where whether Joseph likes it or not, uh, even outside of any actions that Joseph might commit in and of himself, there's going to be conflict because not only do his brothers loathe him, but they quite literally cannot speak peaceably unto him. He, they cannot open their mouths toward him without saying something that is kind or that is right. Now, as the text goes on, this anger was then compounded by the fact that Joseph was a unique, uh, we might say a special young man. He began having dreams. Dreams which uh, eventually we will find were prophetic in nature, prophetic of future events. Joseph perhaps interpreted them as such, his family perhaps interpreted them as such, but either way, of course, they, they did not necessarily uh, announce the understanding of these as being um, fully prophetic when he started having them, but these dreams were not particularly flattering toward Joseph's family. So Joseph is already hated of his brothers. Joseph already has the favor of his father. And then Joseph has these dreams, two of them, in fact, that he relays. And in these dreams, he sees his father and his mother and his brothers, first as sheaves of wheat, and then second as the sun and the moon and the and, and 11 stars. Uh, and in each dream, these these his family is bowing to him, is making obeisance to him, is, is, is subservient to him. Now, he's already the favored one, and even his father has a little bit of trouble with these dreams, and he's the favored one, and he's having these dreams whereby his family is, sub, is subservient to him, doing obeisance to him. Now, there's not a reflection of malice or of pride in Joseph's heart as he relays these dreams. He is certainly being transparent. Uh, in one sense, a wiser person may have said, you know, I'm just going to keep this dream to myself. But he didn't. He told these dreams. For whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us his motivations. Maybe a desire to consult with his family about their meaning. Maybe saying, what do you think these mean? Why do you think I'm having these dreams? Whatever it might be. We don't see anything in them that is intrinsically malicious as far as he doesn't get up there and say, hey, guess, guess what? I've got a good one for you. I had a dream last night. You want to hear it? No? No, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. You know, he didn't do that, as far as we can tell. 
but it did not sit well, particularly with his brothers, also with his father. We then read in Genesis 37 of a day when Jacob, Israel, sent his son Joseph to account for his brethren. His brethren were supposed to be feeding the flocks of his father around the area of Shechem. And Joseph goes there to find his family, and they're not there. They had moved from Shechem to Dothan, and so Joseph follows them there. And we pick up our account in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 19. We'll read a good chunk of this. The Bible says this, And they said to one another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that, that is in the wilderness. And lay no hand upon him, that he, that, we might rid him out, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold... A company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned into the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren, and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat, and killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father, and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it, and said, This is my son's coat, an evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces, and Jacob rent his clothes, and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt, unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, and captain of the guard. Here we have what can only be described as an egregious offense against Joseph, right? There's no other way to describe it. Joseph, as far as the account tells us, had done nothing to warrant any sort of an offense. He may, uh, they may not have liked him. He may have been favored. That's his dad's problem more than his problem. Uh, but we see nothing in his manner, in his actions, that warranted certainly such a response. His, at first, his brethren planned to kill him. Then at the intercession of Reuben, they did not. And yet, through the advice of Judah, they sold him into slavery for the offense of being dad's favorite and telling him them his dreams. So he sold into slavery, into the house of Potiphar. And of course, his brothers don't care what happens to him at that point. They assume that he'll likely uh, be worked to death at some point. And, and uh, I... I um, as we look at the history of slavery, of chattel slavery in particular, uh, there's not a long history of them living to be uh, old men. 
And so we see this situation play out. You know the story. In Egypt, Joseph deports himself as a godly young man. He does not allow the choices and actions of his brothers to place him into a state of anger, bitterness, or resentment. He does not reason within himself, well, I didn't ask to be here, so I'm going to spend all of my time going about to escape and to be the worst servant I can be and to show them that I don't deserve to be here. He instead proceeds to live out the very same virtue in Egypt that we might presume he lived in Canaan. He honors his master. He does what's right by him. He's honest. He has integrity. It's almost as if what his brothers did did not factor into the way he lived. It's a strange thing, isn't it? We don't see him with a chip on his shoulder. We don't see him with an attitude. We don't see anything that lends us to the idea that he was motivated by revenge. I'm going to do this to be motivated by revenge, although that's a theory that we could, we, we could tack on. It's certainly not implied in the text. And this naturally catches the attention of Potiphar who over the course of time gives more and more authority to this young man, likely in his early 20s at this point, until such a time as Joseph rules over all of the affairs of Potiphar's house. So much so, so implicit was Potiphar's confidence and trust in Joseph, so high, of, so high a man of integrity and of ethic and of, 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 of uh, cleverness was Joseph, that the Bible tells us that Potiphar did not even know what assets he had. The only thing he knew is that when he sat down to meet, food was in front of him and it was good stuff and everything was going great. That's all he knew. Joseph took care of everything. And so let's think critically about this together. What is going on in Joseph's heart at this time? And as I just mentioned, I can think of only two scenarios. Either Joseph is so consumed with the thought of revenge that he's willing to play the game, right, of deportment, integrity. He's hoping he's going to work his way up in the system and then find some means by which to then become powerful enough or to earn his freedom or whatever so that he can exact revenge. Or Joseph so effectively released the offense which his brothers did to him in his own heart by God's grace that he was able to function in the same virtue and integrity as before as if this master was his rightful master and it was a natural thing, that he was not freeborn. And the answer to which of these correct will come toward the end of our narrative. But to those of you who are paying attention, you, you already know which is true, right? Bitterness, anger, revenge, these can certainly serve as points of motivation for actions. They can even motivate us to do things externally that might seem kind or virtuous as a means unto an end. But they never serve as motivations to true virtue. Because bitterness, resentment, and anger only cripple us, right? They just eat us up from the inside. And as Joseph reflects more and more virtue, we cannot help but believe that he was able to live outside of the context of the way others had treated him. That though the offense was yet real, I mean, and we're not talking about, he hurt my feelings, right? We're talking about they wanted to murder me, they threw me into a pit, they sold me for dead. And I am now living a life of chattel slavery because my brother sold me. 
And then, of course, they lied to their father, and they, they greatly harmed their father in this. Terrible, terrible things. The offense was yet real, and yet he, he lived daily under the consequences of these deep wrongs, but he didn't live as if those wrongs were weighing on him. He didn't live under anger, bitterness, or resentment toward them. Joseph's qualities did not just draw the attention of Potiphar. They also drew the attention of Potiphar's wife. And this is where the next bit of problems began for Joseph. Potiphar's wife begins to solicit him to have an affair. So we read Genesis 39, verses 7 through 20. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. The only thing in this house that I can't have is you, he says, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass, when she saw that she had left his garment in her hand, that he had left her, his garment in her hand, excuse me, and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. And he came in unto me to lie with me. And I cried with a loud voice, and it came to pass, when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid upon his, uh, and she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant, which thou hast brought unto us, came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass, when his master heard the, the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant unto me, that his wrath was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. Joseph had great favor and blessing with his father. It was unjustly stripped from him through the jealousy and hatred of his brothers. They didn't just take his coat. They didn't just mess with his inheritance. They, tried, they sold him into chattel slavery. Joseph then, he sets this aside. And he lives in honor to his new master, a master who doesn't necessarily have a right to him. Joseph was freeborn. But he serves his master. He serves his master with singleness of heart and purpose. He does not take anything that is not given to him. He does not do anything uh, aside from what his master would desire of him. He thinks through the lens of God first, his master second. And by no initiation or desire of his own, his master's wife appeals to him to take for himself what was not given to him of his master, to betray his master, and he refuses to do so. He had every power. His master didn't even know what assets he had. How is he going to know, account for his wife? 
but he didn't do it. For all of this integrity, all of the hard work, the favor, the blessing, he is then accused of rape, stripped of it all through lies and deceit. And now as a slave in the land of Egypt, he's thrown into an Egyptian prison. You know the story. In prison, Joseph deports himself as a godly man. He does not allow the choices and actions of Potiphar's wife to place him in a state of anger, of bitterness, or of resentment. He instead proceeds to live out the same virtue in prison that he always has. This naturally catches the attention of the guards, over whom, through the course of time, they give him more and more authority, until the point that the keeper of the prison commits Joseph's commits into Joseph's hands everyone in the prison. And Genesis 39.22 says, whatsoever they did there, Joseph was the doer of it. He's literally in charge, though he's a prisoner himself. And once again, we stop to ask and think critically, what is going on in Joseph's heart? At this point, it's nearly impossible to see such patience and long-term uh, vision as a production of just carefully crafted revenge, Right? The only thing bearing fruit in the heart of Joseph is virtue. A virtue reflective of a heart that is not being held under bitterness, anger, and resentment, but rather release and the intent to serve God where he is put and to trust God with the rest. If God wants me here, I will serve God here. I won't, I won't worry about how I got here. I won't stew over how I came to this point. I will serve God where I am. What a heart, huh? To be able to release in such a way. Twice now this has happened. Stripped from his freedom to serve Potiphar, then given great privilege in Potiphar's house, then stripped from that through lies, and now in an Egyptian prison. As a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison, probably not a great place to be. Now as Joseph serves in this prison, he meets a butler and a baker both of whom had offended Pharaoh. They were the butler and the baker of Pharaoh, and thus they had been thrown into prison as well. And they each have dreams, which Joseph, by God's grace, interprets. By his interpretation, the baker was going to die, and the butler was going to be elevated and restored back into the service of the Pharaoh. Now, following the favorable interpretation for the butler, Joseph makes but one request, but one request of this man, by the way, who Joseph is serving, right? Genesis 40, verses 14 and 15. Joseph says to the butler, But think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. It's a simple request. Just remember me not on the basis of his favor, but rather simply as a means by which to bring to the attention of the Pharaoh his cause. Joseph had done nothing to warrant being sold as a slave. He had done nothing to warrant being cast into prison. And so maybe, just maybe, a leader with a mind toward justice would take up his cause and release him. So the butler was released as Joseph had interpreted and the result is given in verse 23 of Genesis 40. 
Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. Joseph would sit in that prison for two more years before he would come to the mind of the butler. And that only because Pharaoh had a dream which troubled him greatly, and the butler saw Joseph as a potential solution to his master's problem. So Joseph, being uh, recognizing he's still in prison, the butler says, hey, there was this guy in prison when I was there who interprets dreams. Joseph is brought out of prison. He's cleaned up, and he stands before Pharaoh. And there he interprets Pharaoh's dream, which spoke of days of plenty for the land, if you are familiar, followed by days of extreme poverty, extreme lack, famine, not just in the land, but in the world. Unto this end, Pharaoh sees in Joseph tremendous virtue. He elevates him to second in command in all of Egypt, right? The whole of the kingdom of Egypt, Joseph is now second in command, only under Pharaoh himself, charged with preparing the land for the time of lack within the days of the time of plenty. If there are going to be seven years of plenty, Pharaoh says, what man could be wiser and more apt to take those seven years and to use them in such a way as to provide for the seven years of lack? So he puts Joseph in charge. And Joseph does what he always does. He discharges his duty with faithfulness and virtue. And more than what we read, what I find interesting is what we don't read. We do not read. And the butler ended up back in prison. Joseph had the power. We do not read. And Potiphar's wife was toast. Joseph had the power. We do not read. And Potiphar, the one who bought this Hebrew slave, was demoted. We don't read any of those things. Now, did they happen or not? We don't know, but we, that's not what Joseph did with his time. Pastor, maybe the Bible doesn't just mention it. Maybe. But does that reflect unto you the character of Joseph at all? And as we continue to read, you're going to see once again that there's every reason to understand Joseph is living here under forgiveness, commending his judgment to the Lord. Now the story of which you are familiar continues. The famine begins. The whole region has no bread. It is told far and wide that while everyone is lacking bread, Egypt has plenty. Word gets to Jacob, to his 11 sons. They're running out of food. There's no crops being grown. Everyone's hungry. And so in need, Jacob sends his 10 oldest children, his 10 eldest sons, to Egypt to buy bread. When they arrive, Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. They come to him, and they bow down to him, fulfilling the dream from long ago. And in that moment, we might imagine one of two things entered into the heart of Joseph. Either a feeling of grim self-satisfaction at how the tables have turned, but considering his character, not likely. Or, when he saw those ten men bow down to him, he thought back on those dreams, those sheaves of wheat bowing, those stars doing obeisance, and he realized that in order for him to find himself in the point in his life where those dreams had where those dreams would come true where those dreams of god 
that God had given him, revealing his future elevation over his family, in order for them to come to pass, he had to become who he was, which means he had to become a slave. That slave had to be sold to Potiphar. That slave then had to be thrown into the prison where that slave would sit for two years. And then that slave would be elevated because of the dream of Pharaoh, which Pharaoh never would have known that he interpreted dreams if not for the butler who was in prison with Joseph. And then he would be elevated out of it so that he could tell Pharaoh the dream, so that he could be elevated to second in command, so that he could be put in charge of this great project, so that when those 10 brothers came to Egypt looking for food, they would bow down to him in the particular position in which he found himself because of the particular position that Pharaoh had put him in, because of the particular dream that he had interpreted, because of the particular place he had been in and been in and been in because his brother sold him into slavery. And Joseph realized in that moment forming new links of purpose that God had him sold into slavery, that God had Potiphar's wife lie about him, that God had that butler and baker put there, that God had given him the means by which to interpret dreams so that God could elevate him two years later so that he could be in a position to be where he was for this dream to be fulfilled that had been given in his youth. And Joseph there, perhaps God cho chose him to go through all of these things not just for suffering itself, but unto a higher reason, unto a higher calling. When's the last time you took great wrongs done against you and instead of interpreting them as tremendous offenses, started saying, I wonder if this is going to work out if I deport myself properly. I wonder if God might be able to use me to do something great. Or, did, or, or do we just take offense? Respond in offense. What God could not have used Joseph if Joseph had responded in offense any of these times. But because he deported himself in a manner that is consistent with godliness, God was able to use him to do something very, very special, Christian. So Joseph does not reveal himself to his brothers. First, he accuses them of being spies. He demands of them that they corroborate their story about being brothers by bringing their youngest brother whom they had told him about, Benjamin, to join them. This troubles the brothers greatly, for since the perceived death of Joseph, Jacob had been very, very protective of the only other son of his favorite wife, Rachel. The brothers returned to Canaan, with the exception of Simeon, who Joseph kept there as collateral to make sure that they would return. And, he, and they inform their father of these circumstances. Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go until, through desperation of need and the deep assurances of his son Judah, Jacob must finally relent because they simply have no more food. They've got to get food. Egypt is the place. They've got to deal with him again. The brother said, we will not go unless Benjamin goes with us. And the father finally says, look, we either die or Benjamin goes. Either way, there's a risk. Benjamin's got to go. So Benjamin joins them, and Joseph is kind to them. He feeds them. He gives them changes of clothing. He blesses them. He still hides his own identity, however. And then he tests them. He is testing them throughout this process. What he wants to know is, are they the same men? And so he puts his silver cup, and he hides it in Benjamin's sack, and he sends them on their way. And then he sends his men to go 
uh, uh, to go intercept them. And they accuse these brothers of stealing this cup. They say, we didn't steal a cup, and if any of us have, that, man, that, that, that one can be killed. And of course, the cup is found with Benjamin, and this troubles the brothers greatly because they assured their father Benjamin would come back safely. So they return to Egypt where they beg for, to Joseph for mercy, lest in losing their brother, their father would die of a broken heart. Judah even going so far as to offer himself in exchange for Benjamin. Recall it being Judah who had suggested that they sell him, whereas Reuben wanted him delivered. And at this time, Joseph reveals himself, to which the Bible says in the second half of Genesis 45, verse 3, and his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. You think? Mm-hmm. I'd be troubled too. You might imagine this to be true. What would be going through the mind of this group of men who sold their brother to die and to profit off of his death, then lied to their father, putting their father through decades of sorrow and agony to cover their wrongs? And now this brother is standing before them with the power to do whatsoever he will to them, and they were greatly troubled by his presence. But Joseph was kind to them. He tells them that there's five more years of famine. They were only two years into this thing. And he instructs them to return to Canaan, to inform their father, to get their families, to get their father, and to all come into Egypt where he would care for them so that they would not die. And at this point, we have another two possibilities of what Joseph is doing here, right? First, Joseph has been patient. He's bided his time, but will not destroy his brother so long as his father lives. Out of honor of respect for him and his emotional state. But once dad dies, all bets are off. That's kind of the Jacob and Esau thing, right? Esau says, I will, throughout this time, you know, soon my father will die and throughout that time of mourning, but then after that, I'm going to kill my brother. So Jacob runs. Just so happens when Jacob returns, dad's still alive. But that was Esau's idea, right? Is that it? Is, I mean, is, that, is, is, is Joseph just going to be another Esau here? I'll wait. I'll honor my father. But once dad is dead, all bets are off. Or otherwise, Joseph has truly forgiven them. And though he suffered, he bore the scars of likely beatings and great sorrows. He would commend his justice to the Lord and not deal with his brothers according to their wrongs, but see in it something deeper. Now, we're given a hint as to Joseph's mindset in Genesis 45, verse 7. Just after Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says this, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What a perspective, huh? It's okay, brothers. God sent me here early. That's what he did. He didn't say anything about being sold and being imprisoned. And, no, just God, God just sent me here earlier than you. God, God sent me to pave the way. What a perspective. Joseph expresses this conviction built upon the, fun, the fulfillment of the dreams which he had when he was but a youth that God chose Joseph for a unique task of preserving his family, and he was going to, he was going to work out that task. And by the way, destroying his family would not be consistent with that task, right? 
Now let's finish the story. Jacob comes down to Egypt where he sees his son, his grandchildren grow up on his knees, and he lives for 17 years before, he, before dying there in Egypt. He lives in wellness, he lives in safety. He blesses his children before he dies, making them vow a vow that upon his death he would be buried in the land of Canaan with Rachel, uh, excuse me, with Leah. The land of his fathers, the land of promise, the land where his family was buried, he asks that he be buried there. They vowed to him to do so, and he does so. So Jacob dies, Egypt mourns, and Joseph and his brethren take the journey to Canaan to bury their father, and they do so. Now, upon the return of their families, we come to the climax of our narrative. If there was to be a point where Joseph would be entirely free to exact revenge, where there was nothing, uh, he had all the power, and there was no familial restraint, this would be the time. He's bidden his time. He's been patient. His father's gone. Nothing stops him. So what does he do? Genesis 50, verses 15 through 18. And when Joseph's brethren saw their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. That's logical, human, right? And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. His brothers are deeply fearful that Joseph is now ready to enact his revenge. And they humble themselves before him, and they say, Dad had a dying request. And we don't know if this is true or not. We don't read about it. Whether they were lying or not, Dad had this final request, don't destroy us all, please. But they truly humbled themselves. They fell down on their faces before him, seeking, and this is where they actually ask for forgiveness, right? For the first time on record, we see them ask for forgiveness, seek reconciliation. 17 years after Joseph began to care, lovingly care for them, they seek reconciliation. It took them a while. This is perhaps 25 or 30 years after the evil deed they had done. We have no record of reconciliation, of, of them asking for forgiveness before this point. He was sold into slavery with the expectation he would be, be killed, falsely accused of rape, imprisoned, forgotten, finally brought out. And in all of this, when they came fearfully to him and said, Dad asked that you not kill us. We humble ourselves before you. His heart remained tender, his spirit remained soft, and he wept. Because he knew his place under the good and gracious hand of the living God. He had willingly yielded to God that right for justice and revenge, and he had done it decades ago. And here they had lived under the weight of this fear that he had released so long ago. Maybe 17 years ago they should have bowed and said this, and he could have responded to them 17 years earlier. 
and lifted this weight of burden upon them that much earlier. So he wept. And he responds to his brothers, beginning in verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Joseph acknowledged in humility that he is not God, that he has no right to mete out judgment. Notice he fully acknowledges the truth that what they did was an attempt to destroy him. You saw evil against me. But in faith, he recognized that God had bigger plans. And he knew this because of the dream that God had given to him when he was 13 years old. That was God's little kernel showing him that God had a plan. And that many years later, when Joseph was so determined by faith that God had a plan, when those brothers bowed down to him, he said, it was God's plan all along. These things are written for our learning, Christians. In faith, he recognized God's plan to save his family from the effects of the famine, to preserve the children of Israel for their future inheritance. Joseph preserved the line of Messiah. And it came through great suffering. Would you or I be willing to suffer such indignities if it meant God doing something great through us or our children? What if it was that me suffering indignities, suffering them, not taking vengeance, not living in bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, what if it meant that five generations from now, that seed of obedience and humility in my heart would bear fruit in my great-great-great-great-grandson and he would be used by God to spark a worldwide revival. Joseph was used by God to preserve Messiah's seed. And he was used by God through the fire, through indignity, through suffering, through pain, through shame, And what if he hadn't suffered it the way he did? What if he hadn't forgiven the way he had? What if he had been vindictive, resentful, bitter? What if he had held it against them? What if he had treated them in accordance with how they treated him? And thousands of years later, Jesus would bear that same example, would he not? What if Jesus treated us according to our sin? What if he had decided, no, I'm not going to go to the cross. Instead, I'm just going to rain down fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. Joseph held no ill will toward his brothers. He vowed to not only to let them live. He didn't just say, no, I'm going to let you live. What did he say? I will nourish you. I will take it upon myself not only, to, for, to, not, only to, to, to not attack you for this, I will bless you in return. I will pour out my blessings upon you in return. Decades earlier, in God's sovereignty, God gave Joseph a dream 
and he entrusted Joseph with this great ministry specifically because he knew Joseph to be a man of virtue who was determined to leave justice with God and to forgive as the Lord calls us to forgive. So we ask a couple of questions this morning. Could the same be said of you? First, does your humility and manner of forgiving one another look anything like Joseph's? Anything at all? One of the reasons why I love using Joseph is because within the scope of our lives, there are very few people who would be able to say that they've experienced worse than he has. This cuts off what we might be tempted to think, the way that Satan can use things to deceive us or our, where, where, where you could say something to the effect of, well, pastor, you just don't understand what they did to me. And there's this idea in our hearts. Well, yeah, sure. You tell, you, you, you give your anecdotes about the ways people have hurt you, but you have no idea what I've been through. I, I, I don't, unless you told me. But there's very few people who can say that they've gone through more than Joseph. Sure, we can talk about petty offenses and people that really hurt us and such. And, and, and there, are, there are some people who, in here who have been truly damaged, truly wronged. And I'm not trying to minimize that. But very few people can say that they've been through worse than what Joseph went through. Sold into slavery. The ones you love, you love and, and, and trust the most trying to kill you. Sparing your life only to profit from it by selling you into chattel slavery, leaving you to die effectively. Falsely accused of crimes, being imprisoned. And even if it were true that you have faced worse, was God so short-sighted with your circumstances that he forgot to factor your struggles in when he calls you to love and to forgive one another? Do you exist as the singular exception to the rule of all that God has laid out in his word as it relates to forgiveness? Or has God given you, perhaps by your great suffering, a chance to become one a little bit closer to Joseph and a little bit closer to Jesus than maybe some of us will ever know? Of course, it's silly to think of ourselves as the exception to the rule, right? So then we ask again, does your humility and manner of forgiving one another look anything like Joseph's? Not only in that he forgave, not only in that he released, but after that release, which, was, which he had done well before anyone had ever asked for it. And after even the reconciliation, his determination was not just, I'll let you pass this time. It was, I will bless you. Does your manner of forgiveness, your manner of humility, your understanding of truth, does the way you handle conflict look anything like how Joseph does it? And if not, why not? What peace are you missing out on by harboring that resentment? What joy has been stripped out of your heart by binding yourself to the offenses of others? What might God want to do with you that he cannot do with you because you won't trust and obey him? What if God has led you into the things he's led you in because he wants you to release it so that he can use you in a unique and particular way that he can't use me? What are you missing out on? by not doing it God's way. And this leads to our second question. Could God trust your obedience enough to entrust his divine program to you? 
Now, we all with Joseph would say, I don't know. My question this morning is not to ask you how confident you are in the outcomes of your obedience. Asking a hypothetical, what would you do if you were, if you were brought before magistrates and you had to answer for your preaching? I don't know. I, 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 can't, I can't tell you. I'd like to think, I'd like to believe I know what I do, but I don't know. What would you do if, if uh, you, know, you were like some Christian in Syria where your family was captured by militant Islamists and told you renounce Christ or, or you get to watch as your family is destroyed? What would you do? I'd like to think I know what I would do. But those hypotheticals, I don't have the grace for that today, right? In that, in that moment, God would give me the grace for that. I don't have that grace, so I, I'm not going to... I'm, I'm, I, I can give you my hypothetical, <laughs> but I, I don't have that grace. So I'm not asking you what you do in that, in that sense. I'm not asking you that hypothetical. Rather, my question this morning is not to ask you how confident you are in that outcome, but rather how determined are you? I, 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 I can tell you today determinedly what I would do in those situations. I would follow the Lord single-heartedly, unabashedly. I would say what needs to be said. I would do what needs to be done. I would love the Lord my God with all my heart and my soul and my might. And that's what I'm asking. If God were to desire to entrust unto you a part, part of his divine kingdom program, and a part of that meant that you would be betrayed by the ones who you love the most and who you trust the most, and not only would they betray you, but they would profit from that betrayal, and then you would spend years in a situation that you did not ask for. And then you would be, uh, finally work your way into some, some position of comfort and relevance within that situation that you did not ask for, only to be lied to and betrayed again and, and thrown right back to, to the bottom. And not just, you were already at the bottom, but now you're at the bottom of the bottom, right? You're not just a slave. Now you're a, a, a slave who's a prisoner. And if this were to happen to you, could, could God trust you to not become bitter, resentful, unforgiving, angry? When Joseph interacted with Potiphar's wife and he asked her the question, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Joseph had already made up his mind well before he entered that circumstance what he was going to do, where his loyalties lie. Whatever the consequences it was going to be, he was not going to do this thing against God. Is that where your heart lies this morning? No matter who hurts me or how much they hurt me, I am not going to do, I am not going to mar my relationship with God because of, their circum, because of these circumstances or their actions toward me. Nothing is worth that, Christian. Nothing is worth that. I'm not asking you if you're strong enough or passive enough or kind enough to do these things. I'm asking you if you're willing, determined to trust God, to be the kind of man or woman that God can trust and so use to do great things for him. Joseph got to preserve the posterity of Messiah. How might God use you? If there's one thing we know, it's that if you are ever going to find out how God might be able to use you, it's going to begin by trusting and obeying what he's told you. Could God trust your obedience enough to entrust his divine program to you? 
And so we ask this question this morning. A wonderful case study of humility, forgiveness, and truth. A wonderful case study on how to handle conflict. May we be like Joseph this morning. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for God's people, and I ask that you would help them, myself included, help us. It's not easy. I acknowledge, and I know you acknowledge, for we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we, and yet without sin. So, Father, we acknowledge, as you know, the weakness of our own flesh. We acknowledge, as you know, the harm, the sorrow, the pain, the difficulty when those that we love hurt us, betray us, when we are, we are wronged by those we trust or by those who are supposed to have our best interest in mind, authorities, parents, governments, pastors, We know that conflict is not an enjoyable thing. It's not an easy thing. And Father, you know the pride that would desire to well itself up in our hearts to defend ourselves, to fight for ourselves, to get justice, to get remuneration, to uh, seek unto a measure of equity. Thank you for the example of Joseph. who had every reason to exact some measure of revenge, to be angry, to be bitter, to be resentful, but recognized all the more reason not to be. And as your word has told us, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Help us to take Joseph's life and to draw from the depth of that well of wisdom how we ought to be interacting one with another. Pray that your Holy Spirit would lay upon our hearts the ways in which we can live this kind of forgiveness out in our lives, particularly in the midst of conflicts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.